to Acts chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. And as I get my... There we go. It's all worked out here. Acts chapter 8. This is going to kind of be a little bit uh, shorter than I typically go as far as the amount of ground that we cover. And it's just because something that God was showing me this week in my own life. And I hope it ministers to you all. But in John chapter 12, verse 24, we're still going to be in Acts, but in John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus had said, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And when he said this, he was speaking about his own death and how unless his body was put into the ground, he had went through the, the, the rite of death, if you will, Unless he died, there would be no increase. Just like a kernel of wheat, if it doesn't go into the ground, fall off of the plant that it's on and go in the dirt, it stays alive, but there's no increase in the amount of wheat that can grow. And so in the same way, that's how God builds the church. And he did that first and foremost by Jesus Christ dying on the cross in you and I's place so that we could receive forgiveness and peace with God, because though our sin affords us, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is everlasting life. So since the wages of sin is death, what we can earn by our own works is death. Basically, we earned that from the very beginning. Adam and Eve did the same thing. They rebelled against God's commands, and when they did that, they earned death. They said, you know what, we, we want to eat from this tree even though God told us not to. And because of that, the consequence was death. And that death was more than just a physical death. It was a separation from God. And so in order to be brought back close to the Lord, to be reconciled to Him, He had to send an innocent sacrifice, somebody that didn't earn death from their sins, to die in our place so that their death would be basically a payment for you and I's sin. And so Jesus Christ fulfilled that. His death, though it was gruesome, paved the way so that you and I could have peace. And anyone, really, whosoever will believe, can have that same peace if they come to the Lord through Jesus' sacrifice, through His works. Because though our works produce sin, though our works produce death, bring forth death, His works bring forth everlasting life. And so His punishment brought us peace, his judgment, him being judged in our place, set us free, and his death gives us life. So my point in sharing all of that is that Stephen, in the same way, got to identify with his Lord by dying, basically, in the same way. His death, though to us, seems like a tragedy, and it was, it's an atrocity, the way that Stephen died at the hands of those who considered themselves followers of God, very religious Jewish leaders, they put Stephen to death because they believed he was blaspheming. He was claiming to be God, or claiming to follow Jesus who claimed to be God and they didn't receive him. They didn't believe that he was God. And so we'll see that what the enemies of God meant for evil to kill Stephen, to stop him from speaking, God in the life of Stephen used his death for a good purpose. And we looked at that last week. Basically his death was the beginning of the, per, the first major persecution in the Christian church. And I talked about it last week, but basically it was like when they, when they really were so upset with Stephen because he had given this great testimony of God's faithfulness and their, uh, 
basically their harlotry. They had, every time that God blessed them, they would turn their backs on God. They would walk away from His commands. They wouldn't be obedient. And because of that, they would yet again be in a place where they were being disobedient and it brought forth consequences. God told them, if you turn your back on me, basically I'm going to take away all my blessings until you return to me. And so over and over throughout the nation of Israel, that's what happened. But the religious leaders at the time of Jesus' death thought that they were something. They really thought that they had something to offer. They really thought, you know, God chose us. We must really be, he picked us for his team because we're something great. Not because we don't deserve it, but because we do deserve it. They kind of thought that. And I think it's important that we realize we don't deserve God's love. Because when we start to think that way, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We build up with pride. And so God's plan, though, in Stephen's death was to um, allow some persecution so that his word, the testimony of Jesus, would spread. But so far, you have the nation of Israel basically staying in the same place. They're all loving on each other. They're worshiping God. They're blessing one another practically but they they haven't gone anywhere to tell anybody else. They're all telling each other. They're all encouraging one another. But God's desire was not for them to just stay where they were, but to be spread out so that the whole world, John 3.16 says what? God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whosoever will believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that meant just more than just the small area that they lived in. But so often, we don't move on from our little Jerusalem, if you will, unless we have to. You know, and I kind of mentioned last week that I don't know that I would have moved to a different job and work a U.S. tool had not things changed. And the thing that changed was they moved my job to St. Louis. And so I wasn't going to be able to be down here as much or with my family. And so I, I was like, Lord, I would never look for another job except you've allowed it to completely change, you know. I could have very easily gone, man, and I did for a little bit. I was like, man, this is the worst thing ever. God, why are you allowing this hardship in my life? And he was just like, haven't you ever considered that I want to do something different? I'm not going to look for another job from the gas company unless it's taken away in some way. And so I started searching, and because of that, I ended up at a place that employs three to 400 people in the same building that I can share my faith with. And so God's plans are always above our, what we would consider the best plans, but they're for our good and they're always for his glory. And so the same thing's happening in the early church, the persecution, the trial that they're going through, the death of Stephen, it's all going to lead to blessing in other areas of the world. And so what I wanted to look at was in last week's passage, I want to look at basically what was going on after the time of Stephen's death. We looked at last week the first four verses in chapter 8. But to sum it up, in verse um, 2, it says that they were mourning the death of their brother Stephen. Their brother Stephen had just been brutally killed. He was stoned to death for following Jesus and not being willing to renounce that faith. They were basically asking him, you know, are these things so? And they had false charges against Stephen. Things he hadn't even done. They had brought him to trial for. And so he didn't defend himself, but what he did was he said, I want to tell you about God's faithfulness. Maybe this opportunity I have to talk to the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that had put Jesus to death, maybe, just maybe, God's allowing me to put 
in a trial before them so that I can tell them about Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy that they claim to know. And so he shared with them very familiar stories so that they would be able to perhaps turn their lives over to Jesus to repent of their sin and to follow Jesus. But they didn't. Instead, they got aggravated about what Stephen said because he was basically saying, you don't follow God. You think you follow God, but your heart is far from him. And so rather than saying, maybe you're right and considering it, they said, you know what? We're going to shut him up and they put him to death. So his death led to them, the other Christians are watching this go on and he's been put to death and, and they're mourning the death of this person, Stephen, this disciple, this man who had been made a servant in the house of God. They made him a deacon. And when he was put to death, notice that the early Christians, they mourned it. Though they knew that he would be in heaven because of the sacrifice and his trust in Jesus' death, they also mourned it because there's this separation that goes on. We have hope in Christ, but when someone dies, it still hurts. We don't get to see them anymore. They were around all the time. So they were mourning the death of Stephen. They were mourning his death not only because he was dead, but because the same faith that Stephen had, they had, and they knew all of a sudden, you know, we could be put to death for the same reason Stephen was. Number two, verse three says they, some of them were being dragged to prison for being Christians. Now, we, you and I can't relate with this because for the most part, it's, it's okay to be a Christian here. Now, if we start speaking up about that faith, Many times we've seen people kind of get mocked or kind of lambasted on the news or they might even uh, be called hate mongers. But the reality is, for the most part, we don't get threatened with death for it. But number three, um, they scattered. They were scattering because of the fear of persecution. But what I want to point out is, though, even though they knew Stephen got killed for his faith, even though they knew that they could be dragged to prison for being Christians, uh, one of the men that was doing that was Saul. He was there at the day that Stephen was put to death. And though they were scattering because of the fear of persecution, it didn't mean that they were pansies. It didn't mean that they were, you know, they were giving up the faith. It just meant that they were, they were moving on. It was no longer safe to stay in Jerusalem. So the fourth thing that I noticed that they were doing is in verse 4. Though all of this stuff was going on, Stephen put to death, they were mourning his death though they had, could possibly be dragged to prison or, or put to death themselves, when they scattered, verse 4 says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. This is convicting to me because I, I started to think about this and I go, you know, these people had no reason to keep telling their testimony about what Jesus had done in their life because it could have meant for them to die. So why were they still sharing their faith? And why do I, in a culture where it's okay to talk about it, I'm not going to be put in prison. No one's going to put me to death. Why do I keep silent? What, what causes me to keep silent? And so I, I was just pondering that question the other night while I was studying this passage. And so I want to address that because for me personally, this was more than just convicting. It was an indictment against my words. What, what do I get excited about? What am I talking to people about that's more important than salvation, peace? What's more important than joy and hope in the resurrection? So because I was convicted about this as I studied it, I asked that question and I looked at a couple of people that were not kept silent. 
by persecution, by tribulation. I looked at the Apostle Paul, which at this point in our, our text, he's, he's persecuting, he's persevering in what he believes to be the best way to follow God. But at this point in our text, he's against God, right? But later we'll see that he perseveres to follow God with all his heart. So Paul was not afraid to keep silent at the Lord, after the Lord had forgiven him. He was saved and he was made new by Jesus. And he wrote to a younger disciple of his at the end of his life in 2 Timothy. And I'm going to go ahead and turn there. Because what he wrote to Timothy was what I believe is the difference between me and those early Christians who continued to share their faith even though they could be put to death for it. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 is where we'll start. And before we start, we need to realize that Paul isn't just teaching what he's going to say as a theory. He's already been put in prison for his faith. He's already been threatened with death because of what he has chosen to spend his life doing, which is sharing the gospel. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says there, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He said, because of that, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us. He's called us with a holy calling, not according to what we can earn, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, because he knew his calling, because he knew what he had not only been saved from, but called to do, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but nevertheless, I'm not ashamed." In other words, nevertheless, I'm not going to back down from what God has given me to do. And here's the reason. This is the, the key to what I believe is uh, the difference between me and the early church. He says, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. I'm going to read that one more time. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Because I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. So the difference between me, oftentimes, and the early church that was threatened with death, and them continuing to speak anyway, is that Paul knew not what he believed. Oftentimes we get worked up about what we believe. He knew who he believed. His personal walk with Jesus was more than about theories or information or just information. It was just, it was about the relationship that he had with his Savior. He knew who he believed and he knew that the person that he had believed in, Jesus, he could trust him to keep what he'd committed to him until the day that Jesus returned. So his faith, his trust, was more than just about information. It was about a promise that God had made to him that he was actively trusting in. That's convicting to me. Because oftentimes I keep silent because most of the time I'm, I'm not sure that I trust that God's able to keep me even though he's told me that he can. 
So each one of them knew who they had believed and they were persuaded he was able to keep them to the day to committed to him until the day that, meaning the day of the Lord and his return. Let me point this out and I'll get off my high horse, my soapbox, if you will. Who you believe will always supersede what you believe. Because when what you believe is called to question, you might be willing to give it up. But who you believe, when someone questions who you believe, when someone questions Jesus and what he has done, what he's promised, it's a lot harder for you to give that up because you already, you've got in scripture, you can look at the testimony of three different guys, no four, that have given a testimony of not just what he said. Because what he said doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean a hill of beans, unless he actually practiced it and he did. So if we know who we believe, then we're less likely to give up on who we've committed our lives to. So let me ask you the question, who have you committed your life to? Is it to the opinion of the person that causes you to be silent? Or is it to the person that has saved you? He's already done the work. And that was uh, kind of where I came to. I, oftentimes, I, I give up on, on sharing my testimony, my faith, what God has done in my life, because I'm afraid somebody's going to mock it. But it doesn't really matter whether they mock it or not. We're just supposed to go tell, tell others. So, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. I'm almost to the actual text. Matthew chapter 6. I believe that this is a principle that will help us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus taught this to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for your, yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, the reason that I share this passage is because oftentimes we forget that Jesus said, Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth will speak. So the things that you tell people about, the things that you're excited about, that's what you're going to talk about. But Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures, excuse me, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now what do we think of when we think of our treasures? We think of things that we own sometimes. We think of relationships, people that we know, people that we've invested in. But oftentimes we don't think of one of the most valuable resources that we have. Our time. Our time. I believe that the early Christians, because of the time that they had invested in spending time personally with Jesus, it affected where their hearts were. They didn't have much. They didn't have anything, most of them. For them to be spread out or scattered meant that they had to leave even what they might have had. Their hearts were in a place where they trusted in Jesus because even their security, their ability to trust in maybe their home or where they lived or you know, just their their comfortable situation in Jerusalem. They were no longer even able to trust in that. that. That had been taken from them by persecution, by them moving. So I believe one of the things that's the hardest for us to give to the Lord is our time because we can't just make more when we spend it. I thought about that because the thing that I'm most stingy with is my time, my personal time. And, and I find though, when I spend a good amount of time with the Lord in the morning before I go to work, you might spend it in the evening, that that is the day that I'm most likely to talk about Jesus with the people that I've met. And I, 
I believe that if we will spend time cultivating our personal relationship with Jesus just by spending time with him in prayer, in Bible study, and just listening and pondering his word, maybe even just listening to what he might have to say to us, that's where our treasure will lie, our time. That's where our treasure will lie, and because of that, there our heart will be also. We won't be able to keep silent because as we invest our time getting to know the person of Christ, getting to know our Savior, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Think about it this way. Do you think if you spent the amount of time that you spend with Jesus every week, where the amount of time, take that time, whatever it is in your head, and say, if I would have spent this much time a week with my spouse now, would that relationship have led to marriage? Because I'm convicted about that because oftentimes I think of my relationship with Jesus and I think about my relationship with my wife and had I spent the time I do right now as a pastor studying the word, getting prepared to go to work or getting prepared to go to church, if I'd have only spent the amount of time that I spend with Jesus right now with my wife, she would have never married me. And oftentimes we look at our relationship with Jesus and we go, why isn't this more fruitful? Why am I not as excited about my relationship with the Lord? Why don't I tell other people about them? And it's because I oftentimes don't really invest that much in my time with Him. And so, okay, I'm off of that point now. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. In verse 4 it says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then he gives us an example of that. He gives us Philip. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. This is what came off of his lips. He got to this area of Samaria. And the multitudes, verse 6, with one accord, they listened to the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, which confirmed the words that he spoke. For unclean spirits, this is what was going on, unclean spirits crying with a loud voice, they came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So Philip, where he was scattered to, we talked about how there's two different meanings of scattered. As the early church was scattered, there's two ideas of it in the Greek. I didn't look up the words because I can't pronounce them anyway. But one of the words means to be scattered like we would take someone's ashes. If they were, you know, they had had themselves cremated, we scatter them and basically they spread out, they go to the wind whether it's over a lake or whether it's to some place. And basically, they're scattered to the point where you can't recognize them anymore. They're gone. This is not the idea of the scattering that took place in the early church. This scattering is the idea of a farmer who scatters seed over a seed bed. And when that seed is scattered, it lands on ground. Jesus has the parable. He talks about the different soils it can land on. But the idea is that they're scattered out in a, in a pattern so that they can be more effective spread out than they would ever be in one clump. If you take a bunch of seeds and you grow them in one spot, what happens? They either don't grow or they grow and you've got a whole bunch of sprouts coming out, but they can't produce as much fruit as if they all had enough soil to grow in. And so God takes you and I, he lets the pressures of life spread us out into different areas. Now, if you're like me, you always complain, Lord, I could be used by you if I just didn't have to work every day. And he's like, no, that's the soil that I planted you in. Be content in it and let me grow you. Well, for Philip, he's been spread to an area that you and I, whether we realize it or not, 
he, he probably didn't like it, more than likely. Because Samaria was not a well-known, it was like going to the ghetto of any city. It's not where the Israelites liked to be. As a matter of fact, they would go miles and miles out of the way to avoid Samaria. So rather than going through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, they would go way around and they would land up in Jerusalem. Well, in John chapter 4, and if you'll turn there with me, I went way too far. John chapter 4, Jesus had just gotten done speaking with the Pharisees, and he had just gotten done speaking with a group that basically had wanted nothing to do with him. And as he left Judea, and he departed to go to Galilee, what happened on the way is he needed to go through Samaria. Verse 4 of John chapter 4 says he needed to go through Samaria. And when he told his disciples this, the, the original, the literal phrase that he said is, I must needs go through Samaria. Now, you and I wouldn't must needs to go anywhere. That doesn't make any sense. We're like, you're speaking backwards. You're speaking kind of jumbled up language. But the idea was, I have to go. Much like um, Jacob, when I talked to him, he's like, I must needs go to St. Joe Park and ride my four-wheeler. I mean, he gets excited. You talk about four-wheelers or, or going, you know, he's like, hey, we need to go to, the first few times I talked to him, he's always like, hey, you want to talk about four-wheelers? I'm like, go for it, Jacob, because I'm just going to listen. I don't know much, you know, but he must needs go through Samaria. He, he had to go. It was, the, it was the Lord's will that he would go through. And the disciples are hearing this going, really? Why? It's like going through some town that's dangerous. You got to lock the doors and go, why are we going through that place? That's not a good place to be. There's all these pagan idols and there's all this false worship. Well, here's the background behind that. When I get to it. (laughs) 600 years before this passage in Acts, the Assyrians, this foreign nation, this big, huge area, they were conquering other nations by the droves. They were going in and they were taking over. And as they were taking over, they conquered the northern area of Israel. You'll remember that Judea was in the south. That's where King David started his kingdom. But when the kingdom of Israel was split, you had Judea in the south, and you had what they called Israel in the north. It was the ten tribes. But in the the south, it was Judea. And there, you had Judah. And so, anyway, during that time, the Assyrians came through and they conquered that nation. And when they conquered that nation, they did something that oftentimes happens when a nation goes in and they're conquering a bunch trying to grow their kingdom. The Assyrians had this plan. What they would do is they would water down their culture. They would take away the cultural identity of the area they conquered. And the way they would do that is they would take all the affluent people of that nation, the higher to middle class people, and they would ship them off to their home nation. They would take the cream of the crop, anybody that was very into their cultural identity, and they would ship them to a different area. They would take them back to the Assyrians' capital. And then they would leave all those who were lower class there, and then from some other nation they had conquered, they would bring in their influential people, and basically what they would do is they would try to get rid of their cultural identity. Now for the Jews, their cultural identity was worshiping their God. So they would bring in all these foreign people that had different ideas and different gods, and they would bring them in to the point where the lower class people of Israel would have nobody to marry except foreign people. Now this isn't because they were racist. This is because what they wanted to do was remove all of their cultural identity. They didn't want them to have that pride about their country. So the best way to do that is to separate them, divide and conquer, if you will. 
And so when they would do that, basically the end result was they brought in all these foreign gods and anybody that really wasn't into worshiping their god anyway started worshiping foreign idols. And that would kind of weaken them as a country because Israel's, if anything, their strength was that they had the one true and living God who was on their side. So to get them to worship false idols would basically help them to lose favor with their God. So the Jews of that day, because of the, the northern Israelites kind of giving up on worship their, of their God, they hated the Samaritans. They were this mixed race of people that no longer worshiped God the way that, that God had given them to worship them. So there was this deep-seated prejudice that they had against the Samaritans. So for Philip to go to the Samaritans and to share the gospel was, would be like us going to some country that we don't like at all, being forced to go there and loving them by sharing the truth with them. We'd be less likely to do that. But Philip, when he got there, for whatever reason, God had instilled in him a love for people that went beyond prejudices and boundaries. He had recognized that God didn't love him because he had something to offer her because he was great. He recognized that God loved him because he just decided to. And so recognizing that God loved him that much, when he went, was forced to go to this area of Samaria, he shared the testimony of Jesus Christ. And his testimony that he shared was fruitful because it says there that many were saved. Why is that? Well, apparently, when Jesus went there in John chapter 4, he had already done some pre-work evangelism. He, remember, he, when he went through there in John chapter 4, it says that while he was there, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, a well that Jacob had dug back in the day. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey... As he was going to Galilee, he took a break there in Samaria. He sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it was about noon. It was hot out. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away. They went to the city to buy food. And then verse 9 says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me? A Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So it wasn't just that they were, had prejudices against him. The Samaritans recognized, like, they don't talk to us. What's the deal? We used to be their people, and all of a sudden, they don't like us anymore. So they didn't even try to have dealings with them. So, but what I want to point out is that Jesus has this deep, meaningful conversation with this woman, him the whole time talking about living water himself, and she the whole time talking about the water that's in this hole in the ground. And basically, she comes to the end result here in verse 25. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So even though she recognized that she wasn't really following God the right way, she also knew that there was a Messiah that the scriptures talked about. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, many people always say that, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. I, I read this verse and I go, well, it seems pretty obvious here. He was claiming to be God. But then in verse 27, I think that's where I want to read. Uh, verse 25, excuse me, 27. At, at this point, his disciples came back from the city. They marveled that he was even talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And the woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? 
And then they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him to eat something. So then, I want to point out that Philip had a fruitful ministry in Samaria because the way had already been paved. The seed had already been planted. And so Philip's just basically showing up saying, hey, that Jesus that came and spoke to you, he died. But on the third day, he rose again and he lives today. He wasn't just some guy, but he was in fact the Messiah that you thought he was. And then he confirms it by doing miracles that we read about in Acts chapter 8. And then what I want to point out is that after Jesus had shared the truth with them, there in John chapter 4, it says many of the Samaritans believed, excuse me, verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. So who knows what conversations he got to have with these people. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, meaning the woman, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ and the Savior of the world. Once again, I want to point out that though these guys shared a testimony about Jesus, though Jesus had spoken, and the woman went into the city, she gave her testimony, the effectiveness of Jesus and those who believed in him, they didn't believe because of the woman's testimony. It says here that they believed because they, they met Jesus themselves. Now, oftentimes, we want to convince people intellectual by, intellectually by talking to them about Jesus. But if we spend every moment of our lives talking to those people and in telling them about Jesus, but we never introduce them to him personally, which is what she did, she took them back out to the well. They went out there perhaps for water and they found living water. They met him personally. And because they met him personally, it says there, we believe not because of what you said, but because we've heard him personally. We know that he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So Philip's ministry and the fruitfulness here is that when he preached Christ to them, he didn't just introduce them to a new way of living. He didn't just give them flyers with more information. He introduced them to the living Lord through his testimony. He said, come and see what God has done for me. So let me ask you, if that is our mission, if we're called to go out and share with people what God has done for us personally, how much do you and I have to say? How much do you have to say? If God said to you right now, go down the street and knock on a door and talk to somebody and tell them what God's done in your life, what would you tell them? Would you have anything to tell them? Because oftentimes I don't have anything to tell anybody about Jesus and what he's doing to me personally because I haven't spent any time with him. I, I read about him every day. That's, that's my thing. I sit down in the morning, I read three to five chapters, and that's what I call my Jesus time. But oftentimes I read information and I never spend time with the person of Christ. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. He didn't say, I know what I believe. Let me ask you, who have you believed? Have you believed a pastor? Have you believed a parent? Have you believed your spouse? Do you know who you believe? Because that's what's going to make the difference in the early church. There's going to be the spread of the gospel. There's going to be many who are saved. But notice that every person that God uses, Peter, John, they knew Jesus personally. They had been uh, saved by him. They had walked with him. And they'd been forgiven by him after they failed multiple, multiple times. But what made the difference in their ministry 
between what they've done and what I do, oftentimes is the lacking is just personal time with Jesus. And in our culture where everything pulls at our attention, pulls at our time that we can't give back, we oftentimes spend our most valuable of treasures on things that won't matter in the long run. And those things aren't bad. We need to get away. We just went last night and got some pizza. We had to get out. We had to just spend some time together. Just like we have to spend time with our spouses to have that unity in our marriages. That's the same thing we need with Jesus. So let me just challenge you this morning. There's one thing I could say. Hey, it's summertime. There's going to be lots of things to do. Make sure you budget some time if you need to. I have to. Budget some time to spend it with your Savior because that is the only way that He will be able to impact the world through you. That's the only way that Samaritans, people that are the unlikable, the un, you know, our prejudices, that's how God's going to change us to reach people we wouldn't normally even want to talk to. And that's how He will give us the power and the ability to live a life that's surrendered to Him that not only blesses us, it'll be life for us, but it will be life for those that we speak to. Let me read.